that we do not know Engelberg, the tune Engelberg. We are going to learn the tune Engelberg. <laughs> We've just sung the 24th Psalm as paraphrased by Edmund Clowney. Let's open our Bibles again to Luke's Gospel. The fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel. Verses 1 through 15. Now let me remind you that when last we were in Luke's Gospel together, two Sundays back, that we studied together this incredible and very important genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember that the sonship of Jesus, as seen in his baptism, as seen in the genealogy, is intimately connected, I've already told you, with a passage that we are about to read and expound this morning. The genealogy is traced back to Adam, the son of God. And that connection is essential for what we are about to read in the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, we are grateful for your word. Help us now as your people to have open hearts May we be eager to hear your word expounded. May it grow us in grace. May some lost person come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior this morning and prepare the hearts of your people to come to the table of the Lord and help this preacher to be a herald of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with your copy of God's word in your hand? Luke's Gospel. Chapter 4, the first 15 verses. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, when Adam sinned, all of his posterity sinned in him and fell with him in his transgression. He fell deep, 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 and the human race fell deeply with him into sin. We cannot begin to understand the depravity of our nature and how fallen we are and how deeply we must have a Redeemer to save us from our sin. Adam failed. But in the passage we are looking at this morning, Jesus, the last Adam, succeeded. Now, Luke arranges the temptations in a different order than Matthew, Luke ending with the temptation in Jerusalem. He does this to make a theological point. For Luke, everything is moving toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place of climax for his entire gospel, and so Luke is pushing, pushing, pushing all the way through his gospel to the cross and the resurrection. Each temptation, as you will see, strikes at the uniqueness of Christ as the Son of God. But before looking at the temptations themselves, will you think with me, first of all, just briefly of the place of temptation? Filled with the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus is led into the wilderness, into the desert, This is God's plan. He must go there to be tempted for us. God is leading his son into the wilderness to be tempted for you on your behalf. In the scriptures, the desert is sometimes associated with a place of demonic activity. At other times, it is associated as a place for seeking God. And undoubtedly, both are true of this passage. The time frame, 40 days, surely is intended to bring to mind other key events in redemptive history, 40 days of flood, 40 years of Israel wandering in the wilderness, 40 days that Moses fasted, as did Elijah. Moses was 40 days on the mount to receive the covenant from God. Now, I think the primary purpose for revealing to us that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness was not so much to emphasize that Jesus now succeeds where Israel failed, though undoubtedly that is there too, but it's there to emphasize that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed, hence the connection with the genealogy that we saw last time. Adam failed in Eden. After Eden, there is a fallen world, there is wilderness, and Jesus succeeds even there. He is tempted of the devil, and the devil is real. I heard a statistic just this last week that four in, out of ten professed evangelicals do not believe that the devil is real. Well, I don't know how one can be an evangelical and not believe that the devil is real, but it was an astounding thing for me to hear. The devil is real. He is real, he is personal, he is powerful, he is not all-powerful. He is a creature, 
He is a fallen angelic creature, but the devil is not simply a name for evil. He is the evil one, and he tempts the Savior in this passage. And so Jesus is a true human, God incarnate. He's weak in body. He has not eaten for 40 days, and the devil in this context tempts the Savior. So now we look at the temptations. The second point, the first temptation, is the temptation regarding bread. Jesus is hungry. He's a real man. He is God in the flesh. He's hungry. He could create food. And Satan tempts him, just transform this stone into a loaf. The temptation hangs on the if in verse 3. As do all of the temptations, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread, challenging Jesus as God's own son. In particular, a challenge to distrust the father's promise to provide for his son. The father through the Holy Spirit has led him into the wilderness. He has always promised to provide according to his will for his son. And it's as if the evil one is saying to him, now look at how you're being treated by your father. Just take up this stone, bypass the father's will and provide for yourself. And so Satan's attacks are on God's goodness and God's promises to his son and his providential provision for him in the wilderness. Jesus responds, note, from a heart filled with the word of God, every temptation is answered by the Bible. You may not sever the Christ of the word from the word of Christ And he calls upon his servant Moses to whom he had given this very word that he now quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3 as we see in verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He doesn't argue with the devil. He doesn't debate with the devil. He quotes the word of God to the devil. God's people trust his word. God's people rest in God's promise. You know the passage that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I, the unique son of God, he in essence is saying to the evil one, believe my father's provision, even here in the wilderness, even here with my weakened body. My life is not about doing my will. My life is about doing my father's will. So this was a temptation that Jesus be self-serving, to use things for his own benefit rather than for God's service and according to God's will and according to God's good plan. It includes a temptation to avoid suffering. Every temptation here ultimately is a temptation to avoid the cross. But God the Father called his son to condescend and suffer for our sakes And he came into this world and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Third point, the next temptation is one regarding false worship. We see it in verses 5 through 8. Now in some way, the evil one shows Jesus all the vast kingdoms of the world, all powers and authorities on earth. Ecumenes is the word used here. It means the inhabited world. Jesus is in the wilderness. He has nothing in the way of worldly pomp or show here. 
And actually in the Greek text, the possessive adjective is first, to you I will give, is in the emphatic position. And so Satan must have shown him, I don't know, perhaps libraries and mints and armies and beautiful architecture and natural wonders and crowns and thrones and dominions, but he doesn't show him sin. The devil is God's devil, let it be remembered. He may be called the God of this world in the Bible in the sense that under God's sovereignty, the devil rules the hearts of unbelievers, but he has no authority to offer this to Jesus. And Jesus' authority over the demonic realm we will see recognized in chapters 4 and 7 as we move on in Luke's gospel. God is sovereign, not the devil. But the son's rule is mediator. That is to say, God become man who suffers and bleeds and dies and rises again and has authority given to him because of his mediatorial work. The son's rule as mediator must come about by the design of the Trinitarian plan that leads through the way of the cross. There is no bypassing the cross. Again, it must be God's way, God's will, God's plan that consumes the heart and soul of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the issues. Why not avoid Gethsemane? Why not avoid the cross? And the devil says to him in verse 7, if you then will worship me, it will be yours. It only takes a moment. Just bow the knee for a moment. Just bow the knee to me. Accept my authority and all the earth is yours. Transfer your affection to me. Transfer your loyalty to me. It only takes a moment to bend the knee, Jesus. But Jesus responds from God's word, Deuteronomy 6.13, as found here in verse 8. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Did not Jesus say in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me? And oh, will you ponder for a moment how whole-souled was our Savior's commitment to go to the cross for you and for me. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. He will allow nothing to derail him from this glorious and grand purpose for which he came into the world to honor his Father and to redeem sinners by the shedding of his blood. Bow down to the devil indeed. Every knee will bow down in due time to the Son of God one day, and the devil will be cast into the lake of fire. The devil wants God's place. He invites the creator of all to worship him in a very subtle way. The evil one is attacking at the very, at, at the very point where the cross, the cross is the issue. And at every point attacks the Trinity, the relationship between the Father and the Son. But God is God, his purpose will stand, and he will do all his pleasure. Leading us to the fourth point, which is the next temptation, God's protection is the issue in verses 9 through 12. Luke's gospel stresses Jerusalem, and this temptation takes place. It doesn't tell us how, whether he is literally taken by the evil one to the pinnacle of the temple, whether he has access to his mind. The issue really is not important. The point is, 
Luke's gospel stresses Jerusalem. The next temptation is regarding the temple at Jerusalem and the pinnacle of the temple. Takes him there. Cast yourself down. Doesn't Psalm 91, the psalm we read responsibly this morning, doesn't Psalm 91 say that if you're righteous, God will protect you? Isn't the temple the place where God manifests his special presence? And do not the rabbis say that the Messiah will manifest himself on the highest point of the temple? Just imagine what a great scene it would be. All the people down below seeing the Messiah manifesting himself at the highest point of the temple, casting himself down and the Father protecting him from harm. And so the devil tries to best Jesus in scripture quotation. Now the devil is a fool. The fool of fools. Imagine him trying to best the author of scripture by quoting scripture to him. The omission from Psalm 91, 11, and 12 of in all your ways may be intentional on the devil's part, excluding all the ways of a righteous man, twisting scripture to say that regardless of whether you're doing God's will, regardless of whether you are righteous, he will protect you. But once again, Jesus responds from scripture. What the devil asks of him is not faith, but presumption. And so Jesus again quotes from Deuteronomy, the book that relates to the covenant that God made with his people so profoundly. And in verse 12, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That would be sin. Jesus does not, will not, and cannot sin. Now, the text tells us that after these temptations, that Satan, the devil, leaves him for a while. Geldenheis translates verse 13, I think, very accurately. When the devil had ended every possible kind of temptation, he departed until a suitable time. The devil departs for a time. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you, we read in James 4, 7. And it certainly was true here. The evil one's malevolent work intensifies around chapter 22, and Jesus will confront hell by going to the cross. He leaves him for a while, but he will return with greater intensity And we will see that especially at Gethsemane. But that leads us, I think, fifthly to this. Will you think with me, having briefly looked at these temptations, will you think with me about the uniqueness of Christ's temptation in the wilderness? Christ, as we have said in connection with the genealogy, is the last Adam. He is being tempted here as your representative. He is being tempted in your place. He is tested as the final Adam in order that he might redeem those who are fallen in Adam. You, in order that he might redeem you, people of God. The trial was more severe than Adam's. Christ obeys the covenant of works broken by Adam. His success is glorious 
human nature maintains integrity in Christ, the integrity that was lost in Adam and lost for the human race is maintained by the obedience, the active obedience of Christ in this passage. Even the place of temptation was important as we pointed out, but think it through. Adam, in his integrity yet mutability, fell in a garden. Christ obeys and succeeds in the wilderness. Adam had Eve as his companion. Christ has no human companion. Adam was with beasts tamed. Christ was with the wild and the savage. Adam disobeyed amidst plenty and abundance. Christ was struggling with hunger. Adam fell in favorable circumstances, idyllic circumstances, but Christ obeyed in a fallen wilderness, in a sinful world, under the curse brought upon the world by the fall of the human race. Christ's trial was much deeper. Adam had one simple precept to obey. Christ received a torrent of temptation in the wilderness. And so the text presents to us, if I may use the words of one of our theological forefathers, the text presents to us the second probation of the world. Had Christ not obeyed, there would be none of us sitting here today saved from our sins. No one would be justified. No one would be sanctified we all would be lost and undone, but he did not fail. Here is God become man, true and fully human, who passed through life from the cradle to the grave with no sin in absolute and complete integrity. Now, if you think about it, that exposes our hearts, doesn't it? It exposes the need of my heart, and it does yours too. Someone must succeed where Adam failed and where we fail. Someone must have a successful, victorious, perfect combat over the devil and temptation. One who can render perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience on our behalf. And who can pay the penalty when he comes to the cross for our sins because he's qualified by his sinlessness and obedience to the law that you and I broke. So that Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I ask you this morning, are you not glad that you have a Savior? I ask you this morning, are you not glad that you have a sinless Savior? I ask you in the midst of your temptations and trials, are you not glad that you have a Savior who was completely victorious over temptation as your representative? I ask you, are you not glad that you have a Savior who was qualified to go to the cross sinlessly so that he might bear our awful sins in his own body on the tree. I ask you, are you glad? There can be no other Savior 
than a sinless Savior. 1 John 2.16 exposes all of our hearts for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions is not from the Father but is from the world. How then can we be saved? We can be saved by one who did not succumb to this and who was qualified to pay the price for our sins. Jesus did not succumb and he was qualified by his incarnation and sinless life to pay completely in full and with finality the price of our sin. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. If you're trusting anything else, anyone else, you're a lost man, woman, or child. He only was good enough to pay the price of sin. That's what's happening here in the temptation. He is qualifying in his act of obedience to the Father to go to the cross and pay the penalty. Now, do you see that? Do you begin to see and understand that, that, that this is your only hope for eternity? Where is your hope? Listen, what we weave in time we wear for eternity. If you are attempting to weave your efforts for clothing for eternity, you will find, like the emperor in the story, that on the day of judgment you have no clothes at all. But if by faith you put on the robe that Jesus wove for sinners, you will shine in radiance forever. So which is it for you? Filthy rags or the perfect record of Christ? Will you forsake your works as the ground of acceptance and receive Christ whose work counts for everyone who receives him in simple faith? Casting aside your own efforts, attempts, you have been tempted and failed. You also fell in Adam. You cannot pay the price of sin. Jesus did, and Jesus can save you. And so, fellow sinner, you need forgiveness, and Christ can forgive your sins, and only Christ can forgive your sins. I don't remember who said this. It seems to me it's Coleridge. I just really don't remember, but so many stars has not the heavens, so many grains of sand the sea, Not so many sparks the fire, not so many motes the sunlight as the sins which he forgives. Thank God. But now, sixthly, let me give a word of comfort for believers in our ongoing struggle with temptation. Now, someone asks the question, how is it possible for a sinless son of God to be tempted in the first place? And when I taught at Westminster Seminary Systematic Theology, I spent a lot of time on that question. I can't do that this morning, will not do that this morning. And it's interesting that Luke doesn't even touch on the question. But somehow the strength of the temptation was greater because it was horror presented to his holy soul. And every temptation was a ploy to avoid the cross culminating in Gethsemane. This was an essential part of the Son of God's humiliation. And of course it is beyond our comprehension, as is the incarnation itself. Set aside that question. The New Testament wants us to draw comfort from the temptations of Christ 
And indeed, the greatest example of the temptation of Christ we will see in Gethsemane, which is also pointed to in the book of Hebrews in the fifth chapter. Now let's draw a line from the temptation of Christ in Luke's gospel all the way to the book of Hebrews to see the comfort that it would have us draw. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll read some very familiar verses, but I think you will immediately see the applicability of these verses to the temptation narrative we have just read. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Listen to these powerful words and receive comfort from them. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, now this is about Jesus, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In other words, human beings like you. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see the connection? He suffered. His temptation sufferings are your encouragement in the midst of the sufferings of your temptations in this world. Turn over to the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, where you see something similar. The fourth chapter, beginning with verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This indeed is encouraging. Let me read two quotations to you. The first is from J.C. Ryle. Speaking of God's people, are they not tempted by Satan too to distrust God's care and goodness? Are you ever tempted to distrust God's care and goodness? Are you? So was Jesus. Are they ever tempted to presume on God's mercy and run into, the da- into danger without warrant? So was Jesus. Are they ever tempted to commit some one great private sin for the sake of some great seeming advantage? So also was Jesus. Are they ever tempted to listen to some misapplication of scripture as an excuse for doing wrong? So also was Jesus. He is just the Savior that attempted people require. Let them flee to him for help and spread before him all their troubles. They will find his ear ever ready to hear and his heart ever ready to feel. He can understand your sorrows. May we all know the value of a sympathizing Savior by experience. There is nothing to be compared to it in this cold and deceitful world. 
Those who seek their happiness in this life only and despise the religion of the Bible have no idea what true comfort they are missing. Ryle's point is this. At every point that you are tempted, Jesus has with success overcome the temptation. He is now a sympathetic high priest. He will not permit you to be tempted beyond what you are able, the Bible tells us. And so when you are tempted, what do you do? You go to the one who overcame temptation on your behalf, who sympathizes with you, who cares for you, who loves you, who will uphold you. The very worst thing you can do in times of temptation is fail to go to him. Go to him and draw strength from the one who was tempted for you. John Murray put it in this beautiful way. To view the heavenly sympathy of our Lord from the aspect of our existential need, how indispensable to comfort and to perseverance and faith, to know that in all the temptations of this life, we have a sympathizer and helper and comforter and the person of him from whom we must conceal nothing, who feels with us in every weakness and temptation and knows exactly what our situation, physical, psychological, moral, and spiritual is. And this he knows because he himself was tempted like as we are without sin, that he who has this feeling with us in temptation appears in the presence of God for us and is our advocate with the Father, invests his sympathy and help with an efficacy that is nothing less than omnipotent compassion. You know, people of God, one of the problems with preaching is that I can never get the passion of the heart out adequately. But God is faithful and will not allow us to be tempted above what we are able And we have a great high priest who went through temptation, suffering for us, and a Holy Spirit within us, and prayer and the mighty weapon of the word, all under under the omnipotent compassion of our great high priest, tempted for you, succeeding for you, paying the penalty of your sin, now your great high priest ruling and reigning over your life with, to repeat Murray's words, omnipotent, all-powerful compassion. He's not simply a savior that has compassion. He has compassion and is able to do for you what you need for his glory because his compassion is omnipotent compassion. Now, I find that overwhelming. To contemplate this passage and to see my Savior, this is God become man, submitting himself to be tempted of the devil? Doesn't that move your soul? Can we sit here unmoved by this? And he overcame him. At every point, because he knew that you could not be saved without it. I love the story of A.T. Robertson, that great 
Greek New Testament scholar. He had been lecturing to his class on the sympathy of Jesus, the sympathy of Jesus with our daily needs. And after class, he returned to his study, and a beloved student followed him and found him there in the midst of his books, weeping, his eyes swimming in tears, overflowing down his cheeks. And Dr. Robertson said, as he looked up to his student, he said, and think, brother, he's the same, he's the same Jesus now. He's the same Jesus now. My flock, think of it. He's the same Jesus loving you, full of compassion for you, omnipotent compassion. He's the same Jesus now. Our great high priest who suffered victoriously over temptation sufferings in our behalf, thank God, is the same Jesus now. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.